Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. And now that we have this great ability to make all these friendships and these ties and access groups and organizations, it is not only the new luxury, it's a new requirement. Those are the words of Richard Liu, an American journalist and news anchor for MSNBC and NBC News, and formerly with CNN Nationwide, responding to my comment that face-to-face conversation has become the new luxury. As a columnist, Richard has contributed to many publications, including USA Today, Politico, lots of others, and his speaking gigs span six continents. I'm told his Twitter following is in the top 1%. Before journalism, Richard spent time in the business world with Fortune 500 companies, and he holds a patent for the first bank-centric payment system seed-funded and incubated by Citibank. One of the fascinating things about Richard I like is that because his grandfather, an illegal immigrant to the United States, filed false paper son documents, as they were called, Richard's real last name is Wong. So Richard and I had a terrific conversation here in New York and covered lots of ground, starting with the fact that both Americans and Chinese have a way to go to understand each other well, but it's evolving. I think that what is different now is that we are seeing here in the United States, and this is the experience that adds to the dialogue, we are seeing Chinese come to the United States in all corners of our great uh, 50 states and and territories. And I think for people in America, when they see Chinese, they're finally getting that first, if you will, experience. It's a lot like uh, what happened in the 80s with Japan. When Japan was coming to the United States, before that we really didn't know what was Japan. And so I think once we get some faces around these ideas, things will evolve. There's no question that China has greater and greater attraction to Westerners. One of the barometers I watch are planes and how full they've been. And when I used to fly back and forth, I used to fly back and forth from uh, Asia like uh, once every month or two uh, for about that five-year period. And I just saw the plans get fuller and fuller and fuller. Now I go back about once a year for some reason or other. Um, and if that's any indication that we're, we moved from 777s to 747s, even though 777s are the new plane, the 747s carry you know, 50 to 70 more folks, and they were full, and they were adding flights, and, that's, and, and non-stops. And, and so we've seen that sort of growth compared to the sort of planes that we're using going the other way, going to Europe. I think that tells you a lot. We talk of the power that comes from collaboration between individuals and companies and why that's especially important between the U.S. and China. And and that brain circulation is so important. We don't circulate the brains. None of this is going to work the way we want it to work. Uh, Whether or not folks are for globalization or or the word itself or interconnectivity when we talk about business, it just is what it is now. So the brain circulation uh, that you're talking about is so important. Richard points out the growing interest in people going to China, not just people coming to the West from China. And when we look at this sort of reverse diaspora, 
which has been well documented uh, during, so San Francisco where I come from is called Golden Mountain, right, in Chinese. And, and I was doing a story, I was doing some research and looking at actual data coming out of Stanford uh, and one of the professors who's done just really great work at looking at this reverse diaspora. And with the amount of wealth, but as well as the amount of um, incubating cities that have popped up around China and India and in Asia, the number of folks that are like myself, born and raised here in America, whether you're first, second, or third generation, or any way you want to count it, are going, hmm, maybe I will go to China, I will go to India or Singapore or Hong Kong or Taiwan to start my business. Richard and I talk about these topics and many more, so let's get started. Welcome, Richard, to Conversation 360 podcast and this series, Asia and the West. It's great to be here, Susan. Thanks. So, clearly, we know you were born here in the United States and you received your education here. Right. Um, when was it that you lived in Asia? I think it was for five years, right? That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. When was that and where was it? It was in Singapore from 2001 to 2005, 6 slash 6, really 2005. Uh, ostensibly there, uh, post-business school to work for Citibank. And we were working on the corporate side. Uh, this is when we were rolling out this visa-like payment system uh, that we had patented at the time, and we still hold that patent. Uh, that was to replace Visa and MasterCard, theoretically. And Citibank, just to show a little bit of time that has passed, it was the apple of the world in 2002. How long ago was that, Susan? Not that long. <laughs> yeah, right. But eons in some way. Right, yeah. exactly, right. Wow. So, but you got around... The rest of Asia as well. You spent yes. some time in China. Absolutely. You spent some time in Hong Kong right. and elsewhere as well. Did you go yeah, I mean, as you know, if you're if you're in the space, if you're in Hong Kong, in Singapore, uh, Taipei, any of those great cities that are outside, if you will, Chindia, China, India, you you have to go there, and, that, and that's actually why we chose Singapore, not only because of its nice size to launch this idea with Citibank, but we also knew it was a great launching pad to all of these other great places. So yes, to answer your question, over five years, spent a lot of time in China and India and all the other great places uh, in that region. So you've got a great perspective here. So when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what comes to mind for you? What does that mean? Today, I think from the seat that we are at right now, One conversation that happens quite frequently is obviously about the economy and how intertwined it is. And the second topic, and I can go back to that, the second topic is what is China? And which is is sort of uh, perplexing in some ways because this is not a new relationship necessarily. It's not a new existence either. Uh, And having spent time there, you especially, you know this, Um, there is still this, if you will, opaqueness to what China and people from China are or people that are Chinese and in America. Uh, The third uh, sort of storyline that I often end up talking about uh, is this question of are we friends or are we not with China? Uh, 
the storylines are out there involving espionage cases here in the United States. Uh, stories are out there of Chinese in America foundations, organizations, groups that are saying, why is that happening? With some cases not making it uh, to any sort of outcome that uh, was originally thought. So that's happening. And being Chinese American, I get asked these questions. So those are the three storylines pretty often that I, I, I get involved in. And they're, and they're all worth pursuing, actually. I'm curious as to, have you seen, since you went there, has the dialogue shifted during the time since you first went there? I think that what is different now is that we are seeing here in the United States, and this is the experience that adds to the dialogue, we are seeing Chinese come to the United States in all corners of our great uh, 50 states and, and territories. And I think for people in America, when they see Chinese, they're finally getting that first if you will, experience. It's a lot like uh, what happened in the 80s with Japan. When Japan was coming to the United States, before that we really didn't know what was Japan. And so I think once we get some faces around these ideas, things will evolve regarding those three storylines that I was talking about. Um, and, and, you know, even myself, uh, when I was in Asia, I made it a point to go outside of Shanghai and Beijing because there was uh, this gargantuan middle class that we had written about, that we were reporting about. This is in you know the mid two thousands, early two thousands, that I wanted to see face to face. So you know like Chengdu and Qingchong, gar Chongqing, excuse me, gargantuan middle class communities. And I you know I I would argue and, and correct me here, Susan, because you're the expert. That when we look at Chongqing, I think that is the largest, the largest metropolitan area in the world. It's just that it hasn't been documented. Like 35 million, isn't is that is that I right? Think so yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Actually, that that brings up another question, which is in this downturn in the Chinese economy, what kind of an impact do you see that having on having on the businesses that you cover that you know about? What we have seen, uh, at least on the West Coast, when you look at Silicon Valley and, and China, um, some of the investments um, have continued regardless of that downturn. And because as you look at uh, better value or increased value, and you look at that relativity that exists, uh, although there's been some downturn in China, where are you going to get better value? And you're seeing that in, in Western countries. So as we look at some of the investments that have come over, if you will, stateside, uh, surely there has been some uh, decrease, but there's better value here, and it's seen as a, uh, if you will, better, uh, 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 more dependable uh, investment, especially when we look at what's happening in, in the European Union uh, and all the questions that have, have popped up over time. So despite what some might call a downturn in China, um, you know, you're still looking at numbers that are quite large compared to, in terms of GDP growth, to the West. So what about the people, though, individuals that, are, that feel the impact of this? You mentioned the really huge middle class that has developed. We know that people born 30 years ago or less in China have seen nothing but exponential growth. They don't, they, they don't know that the people that the generation right before them actually at times went hungry. So they're the middle class and suddenly they seem to have some fears. Do you, do you follow that at all? Have you been 
interested in what's happening regarding that middle class malaise or perhaps angst? Um, the conversations I've had uh, with my friends from China, uh, either that are here or are still there, because uh, I do still talk to my friends that are living in China. Um, it's, it's a lot like, and maybe it's just me here, Susan, but you know, as, as, as I draw parallels to our experiences with theirs and then also putting together my experience when I, when I spent more time in Asia. It is certainly a, a part of that concern about the future. It is the first, if you will, uh, blip in what has been a long sort of hockey stick uh, in our lifetime, right? Um, so yes, there is concern and you know, I have a friend who uh, is still in uh, Chongqing and although there has been some concern about wage, uh, about the future, uh, about the country, about its dominance, uh, all you have to do is really hop outside in the region and see they are not seeing the great differences that I think that we might be applying to what those numbers might mean. Well, I'm curious, you mentioned something earlier about uh, your conversations with people here. I assume that Westerners, when they meet you, assume that you know all things about China because you have this background. And, and uh, so when you spend time here in the States, you're the resident expert. And then I suppose when you go to China, your friends assume you are, you know, all things American or Western. Is that the case? That is the case. And boy, are they wrong on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> you, my friend, Susan, are the expert on all things China. Well, I'm not, that's absolutely not true. But I'm, I'm curious as to whether, because you, you are able to get your ear to the street, for the man on the street, Chinese impressions about the U.S., are they accurate? Because we know that the impressions many Americans have of what's happening in China are not at all accurate. Um, Actually, my own China has been changing so rapidly that I think any one of us who has been, spent any time there, you know that it, it, it continues to change and you have to quickly get almost re-educated. I remember when I went to Shanghai for right. about the third time and somebody said, when were you last in Shanghai? And I said, oh, let me think. And he said, well, if it hasn't been in the six month, last six months, you haven't been to Shanghai. And I thought, he's so right. Because then I went again shortly after that and whole streets that I had gotten very fond of were gone. It's true of so many places in Asia. Uh, China is certainly that benchmark. But you pick it, right? Uh, you want to talk about Singapore? You want to go to Bangkok? I mean, you select what that example, and we're seeing so much amazing growth. And one of the barometers I watch are planes and how full they've been. And when I used to fly back and, I used to fly back and forth from uh, Asia like uh, once every month or two, uh, for about that five-year period. And I just saw the plans get fuller and fuller and fuller. Now I go back about once a year for some reason or other. Um, and if that's any indication that we're, we moved from 777s to 747s, even though 777s are the new plane, the 747s carry you know, 50 to 70 more folks, and they were full, and they were adding flights, and that's and non-stops. And as we've seen that sort of growth compared to the sort of planes that we're using going the other way, going to Europe, I think that tells you a lot. Well, it also supports my view that people are hungry for face-to-face -face connection and that th these conversations take place best when they're sitting across the table as you and I are. So what do you know about the willingness of the Chinese to speak up against authority? Clearly they're not all happy with everything that's going on there, especially now that they have 
the growth has slowed a bit, and so they have reason to think of whose fault that is and are talking about it. Do you know much about that? Westerners view Chinese as reluctant to speak up because their government heavily censors stuff. But what, what do you know about that? Uh, the, the passion exists, but it's how it's expressed. Um, and I think that what we'll see on the outside is that which you just described. Uh, uneasy, uh, or an easiness, if you will, of, of speaking one's mind. In a way, I think uh, another way of looking at it is the self-editing. And that, I think, long-term can affect any generation. Because if you, if you self-edit along the way, you're not hearing what you are thinking out loud. And if you don't hear what you think out loud, what happens over time, you stop thinking that. You don't know actually what is that next step. What is that next ring on that idea, right? Because there's all these rings that kind of pile up outside of it and you have this fantastic uh, uh, developed concept. So I think as we, we think of that idea of not being able to express one's um, thoughts fully and uh, in multiple venues. And of course, this is a very Western view of the way one does do that. Um, I feel that, that that is not fully realized. And so when we look at some of the different uh, ways that cultures have evolved in, that, in this region that we're talking about, where China is so dominant, it is certainly um, a, a, an opportunity that exists when that happy medium is reached, when those ideas can be expressed. So that brings up the whole idea of innovation, what, what sparks innovation. And our view, at least, of innovation in the West is that it very often springs from the fact that people look at something and say, what if? What if it were not this way? And question authority in the process. We know that the Chinese educational system has been one pretty much of rote learning and those that are unhappy with that have been sending more and more of their kids to the West. And with that, they think that they're getting, at least my understanding is that they think they're getting a, an opportunity to explore more of what's possible right. in the world. Right, right. And, and that brain circulation is so important. We don't circulate the brains, none of this is gonna work the way we want it to work. Uh, whether or not folks are for globalization or, or the word itself, or interconnectivity when we talk about business. It just is w what it is now. So the brain circulation uh, that you're talking about is so important, not only because of that which ha happens in business, but that which surrounds it, right? Uh, and, and so, so I, I so know, understand what you were saying. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this thing around education because it sounds like uh, that's a very profound issue if you really find that people, even those without the wealth to send their kids some other place to school, are looking for alternative means to educate. It's not as if the West has this knocked. I mean, we have everybody in America is talking about the problems with our schools. I often find when I'm talking with people in Asia and they say, well, you don't have this problem because your schools are so terrific and, you know, they they really foster innovation. I'd say, you know, it depends on which part of the population you're talking you're to. You're absolutely That's right. That's not necessarily so. That's absolutely right. So I'm, I'm curious as to when we see so many, as you said, when more and more Asians show up in towns in the United States, and some of them choose not to go back. To me, we gain. 
um, maybe China loses because the idea of having people go back there once educated here, certainly there are some even here at TED in this project that I'm involved in, they're very excited about going back because they want to be the innovators. They see real opportunity for themselves there. And, and, and there is real opportunity is what you're saying. And when we look at this sort of reverse diaspora, which has been well documented uh, during, so San Francisco where I come from, is called Golden Mountain, right, in Chinese. And, and I was doing a story, I was doing some research and looking at actual data coming out of Stanford uh, and one of the professors who's done just really great work at looking at this reverse diaspora. And with the amount of wealth, but as well as the amount of um, incubating cities that have popped up around China and India and in Asia, the number of folks that are like myself, born and raised here in America, whether you're first, second, or third generation, or any way you want to count it, are going, hmm, maybe I will go to China, I will go to India, or Singapore, or Hong Kong, or Taiwan, to start my business. The number of stories you can't even count. What did I do? I went to Singapore to start a business. I am from San Francisco, Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, but we went there to do that. And that was just, I think, the, the tip of that spear, if you will. So if there's any thought of, oh, um, there are different ways of doing this, which I think you're saying here, Susan, because it's not right for everybody, right? Certain, certain sort of nice corners that we all can fit in. Um, that's the amazing thing uh, that we're seeing, I think, coming out of China and coming out of Asia is this lily pad jump where now all these communities, all these incubating communities are, are, are there and they're moving faster in a lot of ways than some of our communities here in the United States. It's really exciting. So I'm fascinated by this, what I see is it's very different from the years when Americans, for example, would go to Europe to go yeah. to school. It was yeah. kind of like get a piece of Europe in your head and then you come back and you're just more well-rounded. Mm -hmm. But what I see right. happening is what I think ends up in co-creation, that people go to these places and together, instead of thinking separately, they come up with something that didn't exist before, whether it's a business, whether right. it's an idea, whether it's a way to solve problems in the environment, whatever it is. There's, there's something, this globalization of brains is, is pretty thrilling, I think. And I think, um, well, let's talk specifically about yeah. You followed some of the Asian companies, especially Chinese companies, Alibaba, Tencent. We know that yeah. they've been yeah. highly disruptive in a very positive way. What about the other companies there? Do you look at all at the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, and are they still kind of doddering around, or are they getting pretty innovative too, or are they a has-been? What's, what's happening? What's fantastic, I was sitting down with the CEO and founder of Alibaba, and uh, it's amazing to really see a person like that exist and thrive in this environment that has all of these uh, stereotypes uh, that one would say, I don't see how those two fit together. This and, is Jack Meyer. Yes, that's about. right. That's the right. former school teacher. That's right. And, and, and when you speak with him, you're absolutely inspired about what that re really does mean in terms of uh, new thinking. Uh, you talk about co-creation, uh, about moving forward in exciting ways with business models. And I think one cannot help if we just look at other models uh, coming out of the United States and Asia. 
When you have that existence, it is infectious. And whether you're talking about SOEs or GLCs in whatever country you're in, they cannot help but now say, I got to be like that. I got to be like that. And I want people like that. How do I get some of that? Because I know I can't bring it all in into what I'm doing. So we're talking about SOEs or GLCs in, in, all, in China and outside of China. They start to, it, and it takes a while. And if you look at, because uh, I spent some time in Singapore as an example, GLCs could not help but look at that thriving uh, new business, new economy space. They then started to what? Pull people from it, pull brains from it, uh, get advisory committees from it, uh, get, give money to it. And so that, that, that co-creation that you just mentioned, which is so important, is exactly what I think we're seeing. You can't let a Jack Ma exist by himself and let him do so well, and it's proven uh, in, in other models that, that are coming out. So I'm, it, it is only a matter of time that um, we're going to see, I think, this echoed, which we saw earlier in, in other economies coming out of Asia, and China being larger, uh, moving at rates perhaps faster in some smaller spaces, uh, and slower in others. Uh, and it, that's always just a step away from that for a second since we're talking about business. You get asked that all the time. So tell me about China. Mm-hmm. Well, what part of China do you want to talk about? And which, which, which language are you talking about? Uh, when it's food, what type of food are you talking about? And we think it's two or three, right? <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny uh, because if you... As you know so well here in, in, your, in your travels and time, and I'd love to read your book that you're going to write three or four different versions of, because those are always the, the exciting things about a place like that. I, I don't even, I mean, I can't wait when I, I, I stop working and I can just travel around places like China for two years. Is gender equality a really big issue in China, though? They've always, you know, from Mao saying women hold up half the sky. I wasn't sure that was their biggest issue in the well, rights area. Well, if you, for, there are many issues we can probably look into. But if we just look at the one-child policy, right, if, if that is not indicative of some sort of understanding culturally about which is more important and which is better, uh, having grown up in a Chinese family and, and seeing that practiced uh, from those who were even born here in this country or had immigrated very young ages, yet still being practiced here in the United States and the great city of San Francisco, where one would not associate that with, just based on, again, I'll go back to the thinking and the leadership and gender equality coming out of places like Northern California, yet it still thrived. And so if there's anything that I see has had a generational effect, not only on my parents, but therefore on their children, me, and further generations, that is a space that I will talk about, and I'm not going to say that that is the most, because I'm not saying that, Susan, but I am saying that is certainly an opportunity to address culturally. And this is not to go into any country or any space and say, you're not doing it right, because I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a place to explore what would be appropriate, especially since years later, I am getting stories from my aunts, who did not get to go to school first and did not get to eat the drumstick. Interesting. And um, now that they've changed the one-child policy, it'll be interesting to see how that 
plays out. And, and it's it's fantastic because when you when you when you speak with uh, women uh, and girls now, it's a totally different. Yeah. It's it's a it's a wholly different conversation. But again, we have these wholly different conversations in the West, yet we still have issues of gender inequality. Well, and isn't it true that in China, at least, people are really used to being given a, a prescribed message. So they haven't had as strong a view about their own data privacy, their own personal privacy as we have in the West, but it's a matter of timing, it, I would imagine. Well, what happens, as you know, it's uh, when do you let that out and how do you let that out? Yes, you're used to it, but when you're told, when I was told as a kid, I had to do something and I heard, that's what the doctor said, that what the doctor said, at a certain point you go, who's the doctor? <laughs> who is this doctor? Mom, tell me who the doctor is that says I need to eat this and do this and walk this way and, you know, and do these things. And so yes, uh, you may be used to that prescribed message or that doctor, but there's the point that you say who is that doctor and you express it in certain ways. So when we talk about information coming in and going out, at a certain point that's going to pop, it's going to break in a way that may or may not be good. But that is, and I say the Grand River, I'm really watching it because it's not only for China, it is for every, every country. As we are here and exist in this Grand River and are swimming around in it, it has got so many tributaries that have not even begun to, to reach out. Oh, you're so right. We don't know the ramifications we don't. of all this. We yeah. don't. It's and like so China is going to actually uh, skip some, again, is going to skip some of these intermediary lily pads that we are going through, you and I, sitting here in New York City, they're going to jump over those. So, Richard, are there other issues that you would like to mention regarding East meets West uh, ideas? Are there things that strike you as particularly interesting that you'd like to bring up? I really am focused on this sort of travel uh, and and the importance of getting our faces in front of them and their faces in front of ours in, in every opportunity we can. This, this situation, this timing, that, this time that we're in, and, and it's a good pivot based on the conversation, the way you're leading this, is we have this access to experience each other, China, United States, West and East, remotely and digitally. And when we think of the effective ties that we can build around that, that's, that's really great. It, if we think back just 50 years, I'm not gonna have a great friend or I would be able to see this great friend anywhere in the world. I can do that with as many as I'd like. Uh, and it's for free. Well, I think there's no question that there's a major appetite, at least on the part of Chinese, to know a great deal about the West. I, I, I learned recently that there are more people in China studying English than there are English speakers in the world, which is a fascinating wow. thing to ponder. Wow. And not surprising. Not surprising. Yeah. But when you look at what's happening in the West, we have had an explosion of interest in kids learning Mandarin right. and some Cantonese. But then you think, but it's not universal. They yeah. all don't take Mandarin in school, although there's more and more interest in it. And I think that's the precursor, that, that ability and that acknowledgement that there is another way of thinking expressed in, in words, in the, in the spoken word, that 
adds to this kind of curiosity. We have to get in front of each other face to face. I agree with you about travel. I, I have this thing that I always say that face to face conversation has become the new luxury because there are so many ways to reach people using technology. But when you can then cement that yeah, right. or even begin it by having the, the, yeah. the great experience of sitting in front of somebody and finding how you're different and then how you are so similar. I would say it's not only the new luxury, it's the new requirement. Because we will start and we, we've seen it in certain spaces. We over depend and lean on non-face-to-face communications uh, and linkages. We over depend on them. We can see this in the United States with the way we're functioning and why we may have some of these conversations that unfortunately we've had to report on as journalists in the last uh, two years. And it's because we don't just get face to face. We don't spend six months or three months or two weeks in a place that are, that's very much different than us. And that you can't replace that. I mean, going to, uh, again, um, the Sichuan province there's only one way I was going to see these largest and understand these largest middle class environments. There was only one way when I was going to college going to understand what Russia meant during the Cold War. And were these people really evil? Yeah, All you, of them. You have to see it. Until I was in yeah. Moscow staying in a home. And now that we have this great ability to make all these friendships and these ties and access groups and organizations, it is not only the new luxury, it's a new requirement. I like that. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for your insights. Thank you, Susan. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.